Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Hamilton is now officially a Delta hotspot. Should Defense Minister Sajan be fired? Is Canada going in the right direction in production of vaccine? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Chris Thompson, Scott's son. Vaccine is now flowing into the country at a solid pace with a whole swag of Moderna arriving this week. How long before we see the guy on the street yelling, who wants a jab or free jab with a beer or fries? Then you know we've made it. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson! Yeah, there you go. How long before all that happens? All right, I want to play you a report now from uh, Global's Brianna Carnegie in regard to hot spots, vaccinations, and how it affects Southern Ontario. Hamilton, Simcoe, Muskoka, and Durham have now been added to the list of Delta hotspots. Eligible residents in those areas can start booking their second dose as of Wednesday, while bookings open up Monday for Ontario residents who received a first dose before May 9th. That's a month ahead of schedule. Vaccines work. They are safe and effective. They will help end the pandemic. Health Minister Christine Elliott also outlined a gradual acceleration for all adults starting June 28th. Children and youth will be able to get their shots ahead of schedule as well, with an exact date yet to be determined. COVID-19 variants are still a concern, and it's critical that everyone sign up to receive your second dose sooner when it's your turn. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So uh, your thoughts today, doctor, on all of this. And, you know, let's clarify first what NASI says about uh, AstraZeneca, because, again, from what we're seeing from British Columbia and Ontario, it is still available for those who want it as the second dose. But can you add a little bit of clarity of what they actually said, doctor? Sure. So I think what NASI is trying to advise is to mix vaccines uh, can get sort of a varied reaction from an AstraZeneca double vaccine. So what they're trying to say here is that uh, NASA, I think, is reviewing the evidence as it becomes available, right? So we've always said throughout the pandemic that evidence around AstraZeneca will continue to evolve as people are studying it over time. And so one of the big things from NASA is that they're trying to look whether there has been a mixed reaction from those who've already received two doses of AstraZeneca. Uh, and what they've seen is that, you know, although they're, they remain happy with people taking a second dose of AstraZeneca, that there is might be a little bit of a concern about the side effects that might evolve. So it is a bit of a mixed messaging. It doesn't really help the whole AstraZeneca uh, messaging around the safety of it. Uh, that being said, and I'm the first one to jump on the mixed messaging because I remember having you on the air when we started the show with one set of information and then something completely different by the end of the show. But that being said, the advice they have offered here is sound advice. It's just that considering what's, you know, the water that's gone under the bridge so far, it's just making it more confusing, especially when British Columbia, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's also on NASI, is saying is still allowing and, and, and having AstraZeneca be distributed in her province as we are here in Ontario and I suspect that will stay the same uh, across uh, the country however what I've noticed this time is it's Dr. Tam that's giving the information so at least we're getting it from one source as opposed to a separate press conference correct and, and just to be very crystal clear here, what they're saying is that people who've received two doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, can be rest assured the vaccine provides very good protection against infection. And more importantly, something we consistently have said, which has not changed over time, is that 
if you receive AstraZeneca both doses, your risk of developing severe disease or the, you know, the chance of you ending up in the hospital is extremely low. I mean, very, very low. So that goes to show the public that AstraZeneca is still considered a safe vaccine and prevents you from the chance of you ending up in the hospital or developing severe disease. However, you know, there are people who are now still choosing to mix and match, right? They're not choosing not to get AstraZeneca as a second vaccine, but rather choose Moderna or Pfizer. And that's based on an earlier advice from Nasi. And we're seeing a bit more efficacy with that. Is that accurate? Correct. We're seeing that the studies or preliminary results have shown that people who took Pfizer after the first shot of taking AstraZeneca have a higher levels of efficacy towards protecting themselves uh, from the virus, especially around the variants. Uh, but, you know, that's also, you have to be careful with those words because that's a lot more scientific than the public really want to be concerned about. The, the yeah. bottom line is that whether you get both doses of the vaccine of AstraZeneca or you decide to mix and match, you're still going to have basic protection against COVID-19. And your chance of you developing severe disease or end up in a hospital is exceptionally, exceptionally low. Um, and so I think that is the main key message that we need to keep emphasizing to people. None of the vaccine, whether you get two doses of Pfizer or two doses of Moderna, or you take AstraZeneca and mRNA vaccine, give you 100% protection. The reason I bring this up, Scott, because I've been noticing that people... Uh, we're losing focus on what the goal here is. The goal here is not to have this bulletproof system where like there's no way ever you're going to get COVID-19. What we're trying to say here is what's going to provide you with the most level of protection. And each one of those vaccines or the mixture of them varies and provides different forms of vaccine uh, protection. And the one last thing I'll say on that is because we're hearing people who got in two doses of vaccine and still getting infected, right? Yeah. And people are questioning, well, wait a minute. You just told us that we'd be protected if we get the vaccine. And we, we have to reiterate the public that it's not 100% protection. It is a, a protection from you dying or you ending up in the ICU. Uh, your thoughts on where we are? Obviously, numbers still can uh, continue to trend downward. And also what I noticed, too, uh, today, Ahmad, was that uh, only one person passing away. And, of course, our condolences to that family. One is one too many. But that's incredible considering where we were. Absolutely. Ontario reported under 350 new COVID-19 cases. That's incredible news. I mean, that goes to the testament of the Canadian people and especially Ontarians to really, you know, you know, staying the course on this war against this virus. I mean, we need to also acknowledge the efforts that we all put into it. I think we, you know, we're very good at sort of thinking about long term, but immediately we just need to say, well done, like well done, Ontarians. We've done a really good job so far. Let's stay on the course. I mean, 350 new cases tells us that the Ontario government is most likely going to be reopening things further. It looks most likely that, you know, uh, come fall, we're going to be one of those countries overall that have done really, really well. And hopefully we won't have a massive surge in the future. Uh, we still have a high number of people getting vaccinated. There still seems to be a good demand for the second dose. Um, and we're just, everybody is working on making sure that we can have available shots. So the big thing that we need to be focusing on now, Scott, is can we make sure that people who want to get the second dose of the vaccine have access to them? And we make it more easier for people to book because there is still a bit of um, issues with actually booking the second dose, which is unfortunate, but hopefully that can be resolved in the next week or so. 
Uh, obviously, a whole pile of Moderna coming in, uh, a million units, a doses, sorry, from uh, the United States, and then uh, I guess a backlog of, of Moderna that has come in or will be in for the rest of the month. I've gone to a couple of local uh, booking uh, Halton and Hamilton's uh, sites, and there's there's stuff available for next week w- this of this Moderna if you want to get on board and start booking those appointments. It's amazing how it's changed in even just 24 hours. Yeah, because I mean, we, I, I said it in your show uh, many times before, and you yourself have stated it. We have ironclad contracts in place. Canada a year ago took a leadership position on making sure that they get those very strong, I mean, from a business language, it's like, you know, the contract to have with those pharmaceuticals where they, you know, put very strict clauses in them to say that you must supply those vaccines to get your payments. And so we are now seeing the outcomes of those contracts. We're seeing a continuous increase in supply of the vaccine. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There will be a time in Canada where we have more vaccine than we know what to do with it. Um, and so I think that we're, we're finally seeing that, you know, people are able to secure the vaccine. Moderna more so than Pfizer now because it's just the supply curve. But that will change any day depending on when we get more Pfizer as opposed to Moderna. And people are able to secure the vaccine different uh, sources. So it could be through the pharmacies could be there through the Ontario Provincial website booking site. Mm-hmm. It could be through their community healthcare centers. The point here is that they're trying to make them as accessible as possible. Yeah, and you can really see those uh, that availability start to open up, but I'm sure it will close just as quickly. It's 1227. Joining us, Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. The good news continues, but we got to remember to be diligent with the protocol until we get that second shot. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan was censured uh, on Thursday, yesterday, after a majority of votes in the House of Commons condemned him over his handling of three files in his portfolio, including uh, military sexual misconduct. The motion put forward by conservative defense critic uh, James Bazan and was passed by a vote of 169 to 151. The Bloc NDP Tories mostly voted in favor of the motion to censure uh, the Liberals voting against it to talk more about all of this mp james bazan is with us james thank you for the time i hope you're well i am thanks for having me on the show so tell us what has happened here and, and what this all means explain this to canadians so uh we've taken the rare move of censoring uh, the defense minister minister harjit sajan uh something that hasn't happened in almost 20 years 2002 was the last time a member was censured uh, we didn't uh, tie any conditions to the censure, but it is an expression of condemnation um, by the majority of members in the um, performance of Minister Sajan in carrying out his duties, or actually his dereliction of duty, uh, as Minister of National Defense. And it involves everything from him misleading Canadians on when we uh, withdrew our fighter jets from the fight against ISIS, going right back to 2015, the first time that he... Uh, showed that he has a very casual relationship with the truth. Uh, then we saw him embellish his service record, uh, calling himself the architect of Operation Medusa. Uh, we witnessed in 2017-2018 how uh, he did the Prime Minister's dirty work in, in um, defaming the reputation and, and uh, attacking the character of Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who hmm. was uh, uh, completely... Um, uh, you know, re- uh, exonerated, yeah, mm-hmm. exonerated uh, after the uh, whole scenario around him 
um, working on the uh, asterisks, trying to get a, a new supply ship for our Royal Canadian Navy. But the most egregious thing that Minister Station has done is that he uh, failed um, to accept evidence. He actually pushed it away and failed to do the right thing in, in, in uh, taking General Vance um, to task over the allegations of sexual misconduct against him three years ago in March of 2018. Uh, and instead, he turned a blind eye, pushed away the evidence, and covered it up for the past three years. And he allowed sexual misconduct in our Canadian Armed Forces to fester. And, you know, we witnessed over the last number of years that uh, one person in the Canadian Armed Forces is sexually assaulted every three days. So over 500-plus uh, um, members of the Armed Forces uh, have been traumatized because of sexual uh, assaults. And that comes down to a lack of leadership. Uh, Mr. Sajan is part of the old boys club. And uh, he and we have this crisis that has happened over the last few months within the armed forces where a, a number of leaders have had to step aside or, 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 or are being investigated uh, due to sexual misconduct. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot going on here over and above the allegations of sexual misconduct. How has he managed to stay under the radar through all of this? Well, he, as we heard from the Prime Minister today, Justin Trudeau said in his presser that Mr. Sajan still has his full confidence. And, you know, it, it is uh, appalling that he is, calls himself a feminist Prime Minister, but he puts more effort in protecting Minister Sajan than he does in protecting the women who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. It's um, disheartening uh, if you're a member, and that's why we're seeing morale at all-time lows in in the forces. And if you look at, you know, when have our forces um, been so demoralized, uh, you have to look at the Somalia affair, the decade of darkness, and the crisis of sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces. And what do they all have in common? They all ha- happen under liberal leadership or the lack thereof. And so uh, if, if just if, if Hardship Sajan won't do the honorable thing and resign, and if Prime Minister Trudeau won't do the right thing and fire Minister Sajan as the Minister of National Defense, then it comes down to the voters of Vancouver South to pass judgment uh, on the failures of, of Hardship Sajan. And it comes down to the voters of Canada to get rid of this unethical and corrupt liberal government. Uh, apparently, he's quite a strong candidate there. Is that one of the reasons the prime minister isn't speaking up more? You know, I asked that question today, is, is why won't the prime minister fire uh, Minister Sajan? Is it because of, of uh, how, how popular he is in the riding? Is it because, uh, we hear rumors that he's a great fundraiser for the Liberal Party of Canada. That isn't a, a, a merit-based reason for leaving him in as the Minister of National Defence. And as much as the Liberals have tried to make this debate yesterday about the service record of, of Minister Sajan when he served in uniform, uh, this isn't about that at all. Minister Sajan has a distinguished career in the Canadian Armed Forces, including the work that he did uh, in Operation Medusa. He wasn't the architect of it, but he did great work in, in ultimately leading to the success of the Armed Forces in that battle. Um, this is about his failures as minister and how he has failed to protect the women and men who serve this country in uniform and how he has uh, uh, continued to undermine 
the, this great institution and one that all of us as Canadians depend on in protecting us here at home and protecting uh, us and our allies around the world. A lot of this was addressed in a report a few years ago that was supposed to be acted on. Now we know that that's going to be uh, re-examined or re-whatever. Um, again, uh, it's not like this is new information here. This is typical liberal dithering, delaying, and, and kicking the can down the road. Instead of acting on the Justice Deschamps report, which uh, came out at the uh, summer of 2015, uh, Minister Sajan was sworn in on November of 2015, and he had an opportunity to act upon the, the great recommendations from um, uh, Madame Deschamps. But instead, he let it collect dust and didn't act on any of them. And uh, and now we're doing it again, are we not? And then now he's got another uh, military justice or another justice, uh, Supreme Court justice, and in Louise Arbor, who is doing the exact same work again. Uh, and no, none of those recommendations will be even in front of the minister for another year to fifteen months. Uh, again, putting the past the next federal election, where they again will not act upon it. And we just had um, uh, another retired Supreme Court judge that did a complete, uh, in, in Justice Fish, that just did a complete review of the military justice system, 100-plus recommendations in it. And, and so how many Supreme Court justices do we need to tell us the same thing? Is that the culture within the Canadian forces need to change, that it is over-sexualized uh, and, and hyper-masculinized, and that uh, we need to see uh, an independent uh, system of reporting and investigating sexual misconduct in the armed forces, something that we have called for as conservatives and have been putting forward our ideas since February when this first broke. And we got Minister Sajan sitting on his hands and not moving forward on this and turning a blind eye. There's no way that Minister Sajan can oversee the changes that are required by the brave men when who serve in uniform. And that's why he has to go now. So what happens now after this censure? What, how, how does this move forward? Because this is obviously, uh, you know, doesn't have any teeth. It's highly symbolic. What, what happens now? It all lies at the feet of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to do the right thing and fire the minister. We're hearing a growing chorus of Canadians, of veterans, of academics, of um, military experts, are all saying that Minister Sajan has lost the confidence of the country to stay in the position as Minister of National Defense. And so by failing to act, Justin Trudeau is showing that he puts partisan politics ahead of doing the right thing for Canadians and for our military members. All right, conservative defense critic James Bazan has been with us putting forward a motion uh, censuring uh, the defense minister. Uh, James, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Have a great weekend. More on this when we return. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Continuing on with the motion that was put forward by the conservative defense critic yesterday and passed in the House by a vote of 169 to 151 to uh, censure Defense Minister Sajan for his handling of allegations in and around uh, sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces. To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprecht is with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Scott, always a pleasure. I am indeed. I don't know if you heard our interview with MP James Bazan, but he was saying basically that uh, after this censure uh, that the Prime Minister should fire the Defence Minister. Your thoughts? So ministers 
usually only resign um, and have an obligation by precedent to resign if there is personal wrongdoing by them involved. Um, and so the question is whether this meets the standard. Um, and um, I suspect it hasn't come to this level. Uh, but let's also remember that this was, of course, a prime minister that for a previous finance minister, a week before that finance minister left his job, the prime minister had expressed full confidence in that particular minister. Uh, so uh, the winds mm. change often rather quickly in this government, as is often the case in minority governments. Um, and certainly when you have three uh, parties in the House um, uh, voting to censure a minister, it um, certainly makes it more difficult for that minister to continue to enjoy the confidence of the government of the day, uh, of Parliament, and of Canadians in terms of uh, his responsibility for that particular department. Uh, either way, it is more bad optics for the Prime Minister heading into a possible election in the fall. So is the Defence Minister on his way out in your mind? Well, I think as uh, MP Bazan pointed out, um, he is a strong a member of the party and a strong performer within the party. He's very popular in his writing and he is a top fundraiser. So I think his personal standing within the party is not in jeopardy. Um, but the optics, of course, of moving, having to move someone out who has considerable credibility within the riding and uh, within his party uh, make it difficult for the prime minister. And so I think this is precisely uh, the political maneuvering here uh, coming up to a potential fall election, making life as difficult as the opposition can. And ultimately, look, this is the opposition's job. They are um, Her Majesty's official opposition, and their job is to oppose. And this is their exercising uh, all their opportunities to do so and to articulate those to Canadians, and especially with an election coming up. Uh, this is in a parliamentary democracy, the exercise of the opposition to make sure that Canadians have a full an informed choice in the next election about the government that they um, uh, that uh, for which they intend which they intend to give a mandate uh, for the coming years. Uh, we certainly know the Liberals, not necessarily a priority for them, is the military. That being said, uh, military aside, this is uh, ripe with sexual misconduct allegations coming from a uh, a self-described feminist. Uh, Prime Minister, does like can you play both sides of this fence? Uh, this is certainly a narrative I think that is now coming from all three opposition parties, and it is also, of course, came uh, uh, quite uh, um, in an articulate and strong fashion from the leader of the Green Party um, in her response to recent challenges to her leadership. And so I think the opposition is trying to um, present Canadians with a choice as to whether 
the values and the words that the government of the day and the prime minister is portraying in their narrative to Canadians maps onto the uh, evidence of the track record that they have provided. And again, with an election coming up, uh, it is an opportunity for the opposition to present a choice to Canadians, whether they continue, whether they opt to vote for continuity or they opt to vote for change. Uh, it seems pretty hard to, and, and you know, there's certainly been allegations like this in the past and they've been mowed over. It, it kind of seems difficult to put this toothpaste back in the tube uh, now. Um, and, and moving forward, this would be a liability going into the next election for the prime minister, would it not? Uh, this is certainly the, I think, intent um, of the Conservative Party and of the opposition parties to expose the, the, the government of the day on as many fronts as they can in terms of vulnerability. But I think it is also in particular by the Conservative Party, but also by the NDP and the Bloc, a more deliberate attempt to draw clear distinctions between themselves and the Liberal Party, because you'll remember multiple op-eds during the last federal election uh, that called into question the, the difference between, rightly or wrongly, uh, at least liberal and conservative platforms as being um, uh, rather sort of uh, similar, with the exception of one wanted a carbon tax and one didn't want a carbon tax. Mm-hmm. And so I think the opposition parties have all learned from that, that it is not enough uh, simply to try to criticize the government, that they will have to op- offer clear uh, and articulate much better the alternatives that they can present to Canadians. And so this is an effort to draw clear lines in the sand um, on wedge issues uh, where they feel they have a comparative strength over the government of the day. Uh, we talked about this before, Christian, the rank and file. Um, how does the rank and file feel about Defense Minister Sajan, and does that matter? Is that important? How, Or better yet, how important is that? Well, civil servants will always serve impartially and objectively any government of the day, but civil servants also always look for leadership from the minister, uh, especially in times of crisis. Um, and uh, there may be a perception that perhaps um, the minister and the government um, are not acting as aggressively and proactively as they could or should. There may also be a perception uh, that perhaps um, of potential um, political or too much political direct involvement in operations, in particular when it comes to members of the senior chain of command. And I think we saw, for instance, rightly or wrongly, Major General Danny Fortin pushing back on that uh, in a legal fashion. And so certainly I think the Liberals would rather not fight the upcoming election on their handling of the defense file in general and of sexual misconduct in particular. And the opposition parties uh, are clearly 
um, uh, smelling a possibility for uh, creating real trouble for the liberals in the next election on this file and have shown their willingness uh, to exploit that vulnerability uh, to the maximum extent possible. Christian Laprac has been with us, uh, professor, both with the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. It's a genuine pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. There has been no better example of Canadian government communications gone horribly wrong than the AstraZeneca vaccine debacle of the COVID-19 pandemic that is sure to be studied by business students for decades to come. Dating back to last February, there have been no less than five complete contradictions between the federal government's Health Canada and the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI, on the use of vaccines in Canada. One saying it is safe, only to have the other say something completely different over and over again. And here is the sixth time. NACI now says they would not be giving AstraZeneca to anyone, including for their second dose. This after government health officials told us to get the first one we could find, which was due to Canada's lack of vaccine supply, leaving us with no choice but AstraZeneca. Then the communications nightmare began and has been going on since the pandemic started a year and a half ago. Yes, we all know science changes and the pandemic evolves, but this is not about science. It's about the left hand having no clue what the right hand is doing, and people are furious with the federal government again, and NACI has played a massive role in this miscommunication. Where is the leadership? I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Since this pandemic started like a year and a half ago, many have wondered why Canada was not in a position such as the UK to produce its own vaccine. We used to at one time, we still do in some forms, but have somehow lost contact with this business. Now the founder of Moderna says Canada must become a biotech hub in preparation for future pandemics. We've often said, and we've often heard other people blaming other governments for the fact that we don't have this capacity. I have said, as I'm sure Ian will reiterate, uh, governments don't produce vaccines. They create the environment which is conducive for companies to pre- uh, produce vaccine. Uh, he is here to tell more, uh, to talk more about all of this. Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and uh, thanks for inviting me on this very important subject. And just before we start talking, because I get angry emails from people saying you're in the pocket of the drug companies, I do not uh, have never in my lifetime on planet Earth received one penny or one nickel directly or indirectly from any pharmaceutical company anywhere on the planet Earth. The only thing I do is consume legal pharmaceutical products called prescription drugs. I do not receive any benefits, nor do I invest in any of these uh, uh, companies directly or indirectly. 
Many, when this first started, blamed uh, past governments saying, you know, they, they, they weren't doing enough to keep these uh, businesses here, that they weren't making vaccine. I've said before, governments don't make vaccine. They just create the business environment that's conducive for to, get, to get companies to do this. We know what the past story is. Um, are we improving this? Are we moving in the right direction? Uh, you know, the guy from Moderna is saying, you know, we're wasting our time with old style vaccines. We got to get into the, the business of the mRNA vaccines. Right. I won't uh, I'll challenge him on that. I'm not a virologist or an immunologist, uh, nor a pharmacist or a scientist. So I won't get into whether we should be getting into the, you know, the new, uh, the newer style of vaccines. I take him at his word. He's a scientist, I believe. And, uh, so I'm not going to challenge him. Uh, but I can talk about the, the larger question. We're really talking about capital investment of a particular company or an industry. And I've been teaching this and studying this and examining this for 30 years in the capstone course. Um, and there are many others that do, too. I mean, the World Bank publishes an annual report called Ease of Doing Business, and they rank all the countries in the world. By, and they look at things like red tape, uh, corporate taxation, um, uh, you know, the entire economic environment. And there's no secret to these multinationals. They can invest in many different countries around the world. Capital is mobile. And I've actually had guest speakers in from some of these companies from time to time in the past. And they're always looking for a country where the risks are, are minimized. And they have there's actually courses and books written on risk uh, analysis. And it's not just the obvious. We're not talking about the scientific risk of, will this vaccine work versus that vaccine. I'm now talking about, you know, things like uh, so-called expropriation risk. Well, that's very low in Canada, the states, and the Western countries, because governments don't arbitrarily seize your, your uh, product, whereas they do in countries like Russia. So that, that's a much higher-risk country to do business in. Um, uh, they don't, uh, do they have uh, price controls? Uh, do they have uh, wage controls on the executives? I mean, they're looking at a, at a whole suite of variables. And Canada, uh, since we introduced uh, price controls, uh, de, fa- de, de facto disguised price controls on our pharmaceutical, pro- pharmaceutical products, uh, the amount invested by the pharma industry in Canada has declined steadily year after year uh, because there are other environments, countries, that are more hospitable to pharmaceutical investment. And, and just one more quick point, Scott. Uh, people can say, well, what's the big deal? The phar- this was just released last week in Washington. The pharmaceutical industry spends more on research and development than any other industry in the world, period, full stop. 24% of their gross revenues gets funneled directly back into hiring all those high-paid scientists and lab technicians. And believe me, people with PhDs in biochemistry do not work for minimum wage. I hope Mr. Jagmeet Singh and Mr. Trudeau, you're listening. They don't work for minimum wage. They make very high salaries, and you need thousands of them. Uh, the second point about this industry, it's, va- va- it's more capital-intensive than oil and gas. And the second problem is the, that um, I'm now talking drugs, but they're very similar to, far, to vaccines, is that the success rate is very, very low. For every 100 drugs or vaccine products that started in the pipeline at the very, very beginning, uh, and then you go to the very end of the pipeline and say, well, how many were finally approved for use on human beings? It's around 2 to 4%. So in other words, in simple terms, for every drug uh, uh, that starts out in the pipeline at the very, very beginning, um, 100 of them, about two will make it to the finish line. So 96 to 98 drugs proposed at the beginning 
never make it. They're shot down because they've got too many risks. The regulators don't like something in the testing and so forth. So it has an extremely high failure rate if only 2% make it to the finish line. Okay, And you have to spend billions of dollars on it. And it takes normally, this last year with the vaccines was an extraordinary exception, Normally, it takes eight to nine years for a drug to be approved from the beginning, uh, when, from the time you start working on it to the time the FDA and other drug uh, country, uh, other countries, drug authorities approve it. So, extremely capital intensive, billions and billions, very long lead times, very high risk of failure. And so, the last thing you need are countries that throw roadblocks in front of you that ex- make the risks go even higher. So as a consequence, because we've thrown these barriers in front of the drug companies, because we've, I mean, I'll be very blunt, uh, I hear MPs and leaders of our country demonizing drug companies. Yeah, they're more interested in generic, they're more interested in generic drugs and lowering prices than they are in research and development. Exactly, but I'm dependent, and people that need drugs for their illnesses, I'm dependent on these drug companies spending billions to develop new uh, products that will alleviate my pain or reduce the the disease uh, or cause it to be cured or what have you. And uh, so my point is this, Scott, I don't believe it's going to happen in Canada as as a center, a hub center, until our whole framework changes, and that's going to require a change in the attitudes of the leadership of Canada. Uh, I'm talking at the national level, um, and I don't see that happening. I don't see it in their language or their rhetoric or their speeches. So what that let me let me is, let me stop you there, Ian. Uh, is that changing? Because now uh, Pfizer, 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 Pfizer. Those are the big words on the lips of the Prime Minister. It's yes. coming in. It's coming in uh, in greater quantities. We went back and right. bought even more of it. Uh, and now uh, the Prime Minister touring the plant in the European Union. So is this Pfizer leveraging all of this to make it more palatable for them? Well, let me put it, I'll answer it this way. To me, the acid test, uh, meaning the critical test that will tell me that we are ready. We we want to embrace uh, a very high-tech, excellent job industry uh, in Canada will be when they eliminate price controls on pharmaceuticals. So long as we have price controls, whereby the government, we don't put price controls on, on my wages as a professor, your wages as a broadcaster. We don't put wage, wage controls on public servants, good God, no, um, or anyone else. But we put uh, price controls on the products of the pharmaceutical industry. Now, I know some of your listeners are That's a big vote-getter. Th- we know that's a big vote-getter, well, though, Ian. You know, we're going to lower the price of prescription drugs. Then guess what? Then we'll be at the back of the bus. And we'll be crying and weeping crocodile tears saying, oh, poor Canadians, why aren't the drug companies investing in Canada? Well, the answer is very clear, because Germany doesn't put price controls on the pharmaceutical companies. The United States of America does not put price controls. UK, United Kingdom does not. These are advanced countries, very high standard of living countries. These aren't, let me be really blunt, these aren't banana republics in the third world. These are very sophisticated countries. They don't do that. And guess what? They have the lion's share of the, of the, the R&D that's spent by pharmaceuticals. Last year, the R&D industry, the research R&D, I'm not talking generics, spent $85 billion U.S. dollars on R&D in the USA alone. That is a staggering, staggering amount of money to anybody. And we don't have a tiny share of that because we have created an environment 
that's hostile for investment. Look, if you're gonna, if you know it costs you about a billion and a half to develop, that's the FDA figure to develop one new drug, bring it to market, about a billion and a half. And you know, at the end of that process, if you put it in Canada, you know that you're gonna get whacked with wage control, price controls, excuse me, on the price of the product because the government's gonna say your prices are too high. And uh, even though they don't have a clue, they don't have a clue about what goes on in the R&D process in the labs with those brilliant uh, people with PhDs in biochemistry. I mean, uh, most MPs wouldn't have a clue about what a molecule is. Not a clue. I mean, they're completely clueless. And yet here they are wanting to regulate the prices. So what I'm saying is it's not going to happen until we change our framework, and we're not going to change our framework of price controls until we change our attitude. And we see, instead of seeing it as a hostile negative force, we see the pharmaceutical industry, in my opinion, in my judgment, as a force for good. I'm talking to you now. I'm functioning as a human being because I take advanced biologic drugs to suppress my rheumatoid arthritis. And, and I am very aware of that. And, and, and so my point being, and there's people I know that have been saved by advanced new cancer treatments and new drugs that deal with heart disease and strokes. And it is not one single politician anywhere in the world that's come up with one new advanced drug. And people say, well, of course not, Ian. Well, that's my point. If they aren't going to be, they don't know the process. They don't know how to do an R&D. They don't do R&D. They don't bring new products to market that saves lives. Then maybe they should step aside and get out of the way and stop blocking progress. So we're certainly hearing lots of politicians we, you know, saying we won't get caught here again. We are not going to end up back here. Have we learned the lesson then? I don't think so, but I'm, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I hear the prime minister give a press conference and say, you know what? We've sinned. We made a big mistake. We're going to get rid of these restrictions on these pharmaceutical companies that are barriers to developing innovative new drugs, and we welcome them. Now, when I see the Prime Minister holding that press conference, I will uh, uh, apologize profusely and loudly. And it hasn't happened yet. Ian Lee's been with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, founder of Moderna, saying Canada must become a biotech hub in preparation for future uh, pandemics and make it more feasible for these companies to come to Canada. Ian, as always, thank you much, uh, so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.